text for this morning is from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because um, of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Amen. So, you get a letter in the mail, and it's an invitation from a family member, let's say a grandson, to attend his wedding. You love them, you want them to feel that love. But the wedding is the same sex way. What do you do? There is so much debate among Christians right now on situations precisely like this one. How is it that we live in this world with all of its rejection of God and yet engage with it with the love of God? What do you do? For the past few weeks, we have been instructed by Paul on how to deal with idolatry primarily concerned around the difficulty of eating foods offered to idols. Uh, that's been his primary illustration. And we have learned a tremendous amount about how to think as Christians, that food itself isn't either blessed or cursed or even possessed. And therefore, we are free to partake in it. And that we should, however, lay down preferences at times for the sake of others. We've also learned that there are covenantal realities that govern how we partake in the world. Taking the world from Christ at his table or taking the world from demons at their table. We have a communion table. And we say it's sufficient. We live in another way where we visit the tables offered to us that also provide life and vitality an abundant life. Christian can't eat at both tables. <clears throat> but as Paul concludes this section, which is what he's doing today on the food and idolatry section, his instructions are on how we to engage with idols 
in the presence of unbelievers. So as he kind of draws to a close, he's calling on us, how do you engage with the idolatry of the world in the presence of unbelievers as a faithful Christian? Chapter 8, up until this point, dealt with how to navigate food offered to idols considering the consciences of the stronger or the weaker brothers, that is, Christians. What's in view here is how to handle food offered to idols among non-believers. It's a great question. And though we don't have the same dynamic with food and idolatry quite in the same way as the Corinthians did, we do have plenty of scenarios where this wisdom brings insight as we navigate life and evangelism among our unchristian neighbors, like that wedding invitation that I mentioned earlier. So Paul starts out by giving some overarching principles that are at play that are aimed to orient his instruction on what to do here. And then he applies those principles, giving an illustration of what engaging non-believers looks like. So here are what those principles are. Number one, it says all things are lawful. Look down at your text with me. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Notice again, uh, we've seen this earlier, the quotation marks here that most of the time are going to be in your uh, copies of Scripture. And they're going to be around the phrase, all things are lawful. This had become a favorite phrase of the Corinthians. And to a degree, it was accurate. All, All things are lawful. But it wasn't without limits. And it wasn't without the need for wisdom. Paul Paul has already made this case. That's true in a sense, but not all things are helpful. And not all things build up. They were truly free to fellowship with anyone. They were truly free to eat anything and to take the world as God had given it. But, as Paul articulates in Galatians 5, Christians, though they are called to freedom, only they are not to use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, they are to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled, he says, in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a crux of what he's trying to get across principally, is that, yes, you're technically free. But that freedom is leveraged, not for the flesh, not just for your private indulgence, but for the good of your neighbor. And so there's a way to use your freedom unwisely. There are ways that are not helpful and that do not build up. And the principle, by the way, just as a pure principle, could apply to lots of things. I could use a banana as a hammer. That is not helpful. I could sit on my phone at night and ignore my kids as they play. That wouldn't build them up. Generally, that wisdom could be used in lots of ways. But as he's applying it specifically to this context, it's saying something more like this. In view here with the idolatry of others is that I could be completely free to eat the food that they are eating. I could listen to the music that they're listening to, watch the movies that they're watching, And I could even have a relationship with people, and I could even go to the wedding, to use the illustration I started with. But it might not be wise. 
it might not be accomplishing what I hope it will. My freedom to engage with them in that moment and in that way might not help them or build them up. And therefore, I might need to check my freedom for their sake. What is the outcome that Paul's looking for? Look at the bottom of this section, verse 33. What is the ambition of helping and building? It is that they may be saved. So what do you do? How do you engage the world for that outcome? That they see Christ clearly in a call to repentance and belief. How do we live in such a world that they would see Christ clearly? Paul says, we're doing this for a goal that they may be saved. Okay, so let's say <clears throat> that many Christians have this goal in mind, salvation. And this would lead some, if you just stopped here, to uh, avoid the foods and avoid the wedding, but it would also lead others, right, to indulge in the food and to go to the wedding. They would use the same principle. We want them to be saved. We want them to be saved. All things are free. So Paul goes on. Principle number two helps us to see what more is the right thing to do. Principle number two is let no one seek his own good. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This principle sheds light in two ways. Number one is that we make it our ambition to serve others. Seeking their good and the glory of God. Seeking their good, and while doing it, glorifying God. You know, you know what glory means? We sort of throw it around too frequently. It just means weight. God is significant. God is holy, holy, holy. How do we serve people and have them see a holy God? Part of the freedom that we do have is freedom from being slaves to ourselves and our own needs. And we are so full from Christ's table and so loved and so taken care of that we are free for once, right, to look outside of ourselves in an effort to give to other people. Now, what might seem good to us is to avoid these situations and these people. Right? That might seem what's good is to simply avoid the difficulty of navigating unbelievers. But we are not to do that. We are to seek out their good. And this brings us to the second part of the principle. One, we are to have an ambition for seeking their good. And the second part is this. When we are to seek the good, it is God who determines what is good for our neighbor, not our neighbor. When we are to seek the good, which we are commanded to do, it is God who determines what is good, not our neighbor. And here is precisely where our current confusion within the church comes from in regards to these matters. The world does not see God's holiness as good, and much of our trepidation about, around being thought cruel or hateful leads us to live and act in such a way that we are essentially agreeing with them. The world does not see God's holiness as good, and so our fear of our neighbor 
leads us as a church to largely agree with them. You're, you're right. God's holiness is uncomfortable. And we give over that right to our unbelieving neighbors. And we fundamentally tell a lie about who God is. We give over the standard of what, if, what is good to them, and we take it away from God. Okay, living in such a way does that. The standard for what goodness is, is given over into the hands of those who don't believe, instead of where it rightly belongs in God's hands. So surgeons are called to take the Hippocratic Oath. You guys know that, and the shorthand is do no harm. So if a patient comes in who is in critical condition but asks you to operate them in, in a way that will not help them and will not cure them, the surgeon is obligated to ignore whatever they want and to give them what will truly save their lives. Right? That's what they are obligated to do. The words of Scripture cut and the holiness of the Lord might be uncomfortable, but we are never to lay down the scalpel of the truth. We are not butchers who come to cleave and cut and break and destroy. We're more like surgeons who cut to heal. That's how the word of God is wielded. No matter what happens in our culture, listen to me here, never ever be convinced that God is the bad guy. Never be convinced of that. Never could be convinced that his word is poison. No matter how uncomfortable the world may be with him at times, God defines what is good. And if we are to have an ambition to seek for the good of others, we must serve them with what God wants and not whatever they want. And as we should all know what God wants for us, even when we were enemies of his, and even when we were dead in our sin, is unfathomably wonderful. What God wanted for us, this should be our testimony, even when we were his enemies, redeemed us, and his kindness led us to repentance. His kindness to us is often a rebuke in our pride. This leads us to our third point here. The earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's. Verse 25 and 26, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. A quote there from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This third principle sort of shifts the focus back to us for just a second and is sort of equipping you, reminding you of your position and how it is that you are capable to engage the world. We are the inheritors of all things that God possesses. Like Peter, when he's told that all foods have been made clean because God owns them and has made them clean, the Christian hasn't inherited the entire world because God has made it clean. It's a really important point. We are free to buy from the market, watch movies, listen to music, have non-believing friends sit at our tables and dine with us. All sorts of things. Although, as we remember, as free as we are, not everything is helpful. And not everything builds up. 
But this means that the lie offered by idols, listen very carefully here, the lie offered by idols is to steal that which already belongs to you. The offer of an idol is stolen goods. It's like going out and trying to take by force or desperation that which already belongs to your home. Where do I get that? It's like the prodigal son story. You can, you can sort of pursue idols in one of two ways. The younger son scorned what he had. And he thought that idols would offer more, so he runs out only to find the hard way that I had everything I needed back home. Shoot, everything I was running after was, <laughs> was back there. And the older brother, frustrated, rule following, one day, I'll, one day I'll get it. And the father rebukes him and says, do you not realize that everything was already here for you? It was here for you the whole time. And the same lie is sold to you when it's outside of Christ and an idol is offered to you. They have nothing with which they haven't borrowed from the Lord. They don't generate anything. So they're selling something to you, a pleasure, an experience, a product, something. And they're saying outside of Christ, this will satisfy you. And sort of the, the diffusing scenario for the Christian is that when you have what you have in Christ, or excuse me, when, when you look at what you have in Christ, you have no loss and you have no lack, and therefore you have no pressure. Does that make sense? So a Christian comes out into the world abundantly full because in Christ, I, I don't have any lack, and I haven't lost anything that I'm going to gain from the world, and so I can now go into the world without pressure. It's not pressure. I'm not missing out. I'm not hungry anymore. I'm satiated. I'm satisfied. And so that grip, that offer, that propaganda, that hold that that marketing has on you, it just no longer has its thing. I got that at home, brother. I got everything I need. I am okay. So how do we use that freedom to serve others? This is kind of the principles that Paul is setting up to say, how do you take that and those principles into serving others? You are full. You are free. But you need to help. And you need to serve. And you need to build up for their salvation. How do you do that? How do you do that? And so he illustrates. And he gives us a really helpful illustration here. Verse 27 through 30. So if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, hey, just want to be clear, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. And I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? What a great Helpful illustration. Generally, listen to this. If an unbeliever asks you to engage with them, go. You're free. I mean, there's so much in Scripture, by the way, that's sort of progressively leading us as 
those who are free in Christ to associate with other people. I mean, Jesus was uh, castigated for associating with temple prostitutes and tax collectors. They were Jewish, though. And then you get to the New Testament, and you see uh, Peter won't eat with uh, Gentiles anymore, right? But he's just associating with the Jews. He gets rebuked and called out. I mean, as it progresses, the more and more we see the gospel shine light amongst its people, it's that we're free to intertwine with the world and bring the gospel there. It's a wonderful, remarkable thing. We should partake in whatever we are offered to do with Christ-like service and gratitude, not troubled as if we're going to be polluted by that person's company, right, that they're unclean, or be polluted by what they're up to. Granted that it's not sin. But if that person makes it clear to you, listen to the illustration here, that the activity with which you are going to partake is in the name of an idol, then for their conscience' sake, you are obligated not to partake in it. So let's go back to our example. That grandmother is free to love and to serve and to share meals with her grandson. But she's not free to go to his same-sex wedding. Let's use another example, one that might come up. You are free to work at a job, partake in workplace activities, but you are not free to wear a rainbow pin when they ask you to do so in the month of July. And then you can't take that pin and say, well, it's just the Noahic Covenant. (laughs) They're not going to buy it. And he says, why why can you not do that? Why, Why are you legitimately free to partake in all these other ways, but as soon as they say, hey, this is in the name of our idol, this is in the name of our idol, you want to join? And he says, no. He says, it's for, look at this carefully, it's for their conscience's sake. He says, not yours. It's not you. It's not you're going to get polluted by hanging out with them. He says, for their conscience's sake. Your liberty isn't defined by their conscience. Right, which is the total stranglehold that we have over our culture right now. Our liberty is defined by God, and we're free. We're not bound. We don't have to be nervous. We don't have to tiptoe around the world. We don't have to think that his holiness is dictated by their conscience. It's settled. Their conscience does not have a grip over us. It does not lead us in how we think or act or worship. But their conscience comes into play with how we partake in their life how much credence we give to it, how much honor we give to it, how much association we will give to it with our actions and presence. And though all things are lawful, they aren't helpful. Because back to why this principle is so important, he said, as they engage. Look, you are free, but it's not helpful to do this. You are free, and there are scenarios, which he just gave, where that action will not build them up. And that goal of salvation might be lost. Paul says, here's where that happens. If an unbeliever knows that you're a Christian, and he's asking you if you will partake with them as they worship their idol. That sort of seems to be the scenario. You've marked yourself out as a Christian. This person has said, hey, just letting you know, the meal we're sharing tonight has been offered up to an idol. It's, I, I'm going to eat it as if it's going to bless my fertility, whatever, in the name of Africa, whatever you're doing. And Paul says, you may not. You may not. 
you must refuse. To observe you partaking in their idol with them obfuscates the truth. It seems to give approval to what they're doing. It's a confusing message regarding the holiness of God and his exclusivity of his worship alone. Claiming the name of Christ while giving homage to other gods is the evangelism of syncretism, which only serves to harden their hearts to the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. It only serves to harden their hearts. Seeking their good here does not mean that we should go along with them even if we don't believe in what they're doing. Seeking their good means that we bring no confusion to the matter. We've got a world of confusion in front of us. And often I hear the question for Christians is how much, even though you know it's not right and not true, how much clarity should you bring because of the emotional conscience backlash that you're going to get? And the scripture here just says, you, you shall not bring confusion to this issue for their sake. Do not confuse them with what the gospel is. The good is obedience to God and not their conscience. So Paul concludes, verse 31. <clears throat> so, brothers, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. That verse in isolation is remarkably true and wonderful. That verse applied to this context is very insightful. Brothers, whether you eat or drink, whether you work at a workplace, whatever university you're going to, whoever's house you're sitting down with, whatever activity you're engaging with, with a non-believer, do it for the glory of God. Do it for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. They may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This text has in view enjoying those things as act of worship. So whether you're eating or drinking, fellowshipping with others, it should be an act for you the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. But also refusing is just the same act of worship. Worship in partaking, you're free. Worship in abstaining, you're free. All of this, Paul says, serves the goal of salvation of others. Too often we think that we can have a better shot of saving someone if we give no offense. Paul certainly remarks here that we should not seek offending others. He does make that comment. Don't, so don't take the truth in as sort of a blistering, uh, you know, bazooka just to give offense and think that you've honored the Lord. No, he makes quite a big deal of engaging with people, participating with them, laying down rights, making every effort to serve them. And yet... A line that is so clear in Scripture, so confusing in the church at times, is that you must maintain clarity here in regard to other people's idols. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father 
except through him alone. Solus Christus, as we've been studying in Sunday school. Men are not saved by our savvy or our sympathy. They are saved by truth that sets them free. Christ crucified, who shares his throne with no idols. But, and here's where our our fuel for engagement is, shares the entire world with all who trust in him. It is the Father's house. So that everything that they need, everything that they want, everything that they are trying to satisfy themselves with, the Christian's testimony is, brother, come home. Because all can be found in Christ. Do not give them any confusion on that point. Point them only and ever to Jesus. Let that be our joyful fuel and mission. Joyful fuel and mission. We have everything that we need. So much so that we don't stop there. We aren't satisfied for our own sake. It's so full that neighbors and family members and all the peoples in all the world can come and eat. And there is no loss for you.